everyone, you're out here today. All right. I invited Chris Bergen to speak as well. Just uh, it's intended to be a Starship call. So we've got the launch coming up tomorrow. And I assume, yeah, everyone can hear me okay? Just <laughs> it's hard to tell. Hopefully, yes. So, great. Yeah, so we've got a hell of a day tomorrow. It's too many launches. I would like to say that there's a good chance that it gets postponed since we're going to be pretty careful about this launch. If it does go wrong, it's a lot to go wrong. Starship is the biggest rocket ever made. And it's over twice the thrust of a Saturn V, the Saturn V moon rocket, which is the largest rocket ever to get to orbit. Roughly twice the mass. Got 33 engines on the booster, gets six engines on the upper stage of the ship. So it's a lot of engines. <laughs> So I would to just set expectations low. <laughs> if we get far enough away from the launch pad to you know, before something goes wrong, then I, I think I would consider that to be a success. Just don't blow up the launch pad. Let's see. Hey, Chris. Hey, Elon. How are you feeling for tomorrow? What's your predictions, really? Because it's a big ask, isn't it? It's 33 engines, 90%. For six seconds, then launch commit. Do you really think that it's got a good chance of launching first time or maybe you'll take a few attempts? Yeah, that's what I'm saying is I think the probability of us triggering a launch board is on the, since this is the first launch of a new rocket, we've actually never launched the booster before. We've test fired the booster, we've not launched it. So the chances of us the triggering an abort and having to postpone the launch are high. That's why I want to just set expectations appropriately. This is not like a some sort of train leaving the station at precisely 9.03 a.m. or something like that. It's it's a, the first launch of a very complicated, gigantic rocket. So it might launch tomorrow, but if but we're going to be very careful and if we see anything that gives us concern, we'll postpone the launch. If we do launch, I uh, would consider anything that gets, that does not result in the destruction of the launch mount itself, the launch, uh, launch pad stage zero, effectively, I would consider that to be a win. Now that, that may sound like, I don't know, like low expectations or something, but it's worth bearing in mind that the Russian N1 rocket, which is the, probably the closest comparison to Starship was, it had a string of failures, never reached orbit. And that was when the Soviet Union was at peak rocket capability with the A team with maximum stick, maximum carrot, meaning like you would be hero of the Soviet Union if you succeeded and off to the gulag if you don't. So maximum motivation, the A plus team, they still failed with keeping that perspective. So it may take us a few kicks of the can here before we reach orbit. And then beyond reaching orbit, we've got to bring the booster back and land. We've got to bring the ship back and land. And in order for the reusability to be rapid, it's got to land where it took off because uh, transporting this gigantic beast around is extremely difficult. So it's got to land, it's got to basically land back on the Mechazilla arms. And it's got to do, and then all of this has got to be accomplished while still keeping payload to a useful orbit significantly above zero. We're not like the first ones to think of the idea of reusability. Obviously, everyone was aware of reusability from the beginning of orbital rocket days, but it's just a staggeringly difficult technical issue 
we live on a planet where it's barely possible. Like if, if this was a video game, it would be set to an, a level of difficulty just below impossible. And many people in the public may not realize that rockets are actually, those big complicated rockets are thrown away every time they fly, with the exception of Falcon 9, where the Falcon 9 is a weird one. It comes back and lands. But we lose the upper stage and we have to catch the fairing far out to sea. And even the boost stage, we usually have to land downrange. A lot of people think like a rocket goes up and then gravity stops at a certain point, but, but that's not actually the case. If you look at a long exposure, you'll see that there's a, an arc to the rocket flight. You actually only go up vertical for a short period of time, and then you do a gravity turn, you tilt over, and then you start going horizontal to the Earth's surface. So what matters is that you're, for getting to orbit is your velocity parallel to the Earth's surface. Same perfect analogy, which is like, like tetherball. The ball stays horizontal if it's going really fast or a ball in a roulette wheel. It's when the outward acceleration equals the inward acceleration. Yeah, the outward acceleration due to motion equals the inward acceleration due to gravity. That's when you experience zero gravity. Anyway, it's going to arc out to sea, hopefully. And uh, but we got this is really like the sort of first step in a very long journey that will require many flights. If for those that have followed the history of Falcon 9 and, or Falcon 1 actually out and our attempts at reusability will really add them all up. I think it might've been like on the close to 20 attempts before we actually recovered a, a, a stage. And then it took many more flights before we had usability that was meaningful where we didn't have to rebuild the whole rocket. Now the Falcon 9 team is a real kick-ass team and they're just making it look easy, relatively speaking. Uh, launching every four days or so. And just to give you a sense of what the Falcon 9 team is hopefully accomplishing this year, it's if we do close to 90 launches, maybe a hundred with an average of 17 ton, metric tons to a useful orbit. That's an important part because sometimes you'll hear these payload to orbit numbers, but they'll be to an orbit that's not useful. A useful orbit would be one where we can take Starlink satellites. That would be a useful orbit. What, 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 what can we drop them off at? Um, so that means on the order of 1600 tons to orbit this year, the rest of all the rest of the rocks on earth this year will probably do three or 400 tons. So just Falcon 9 will do 80% of all earth mass to orbit this year, assuming there aren't any major things that go wrong. I think China's like 10 or, Chris, you may know this better than I do, like 10, yeah. 10 or 12% and then the rest of Earth is like 8%. Yeah, it's absolutely dominating. And it, it's an interesting thing because listening to you talk, you have so many tie-ins there. You talk about Falcon 9, they're all coming back one after the other. For, for, for time, it's, I hate using the word routine because you can't use the word routine in spaceflight. But they're all coming back one by one. And you've got people who've worked on that Falcon 9 recovery who are now working in Starship, like Lars Blackmore. These are like genius level people you've got working there. And that gives you confidence in maybe Starship will have some, have some challenges, but eventually it might work. And then you've got all these booths and ships down the road, the production site, just lying up ready to go. And you've got the evolution with Booster 9, haven't you? So it's whatever happens with Booster 7, you get improvements automatically with Booster 9. So you've got like an evolution path where it's not like other rockets, where if they launch and they fail, they've got like a big downtime before they get the next one ready. You've got them all lined up down the road. <laughs> yeah. And for those listening, uh, 
Yeah, I apologize. Like sometimes I'm in and out of like extreme rocket walk stuff too. I'm trying to address things on the level of someone who doesn't know how rockets work, but is curious and like level nine wizardry. <laughs> so it's, it's a mixture. Some of this is going to sound like Greek, but yeah, to your point, Chris, um, that we, we, actually the funny thing is that we're actually dying to get this rocket off no matter what happens to it, because there are so many improvements between booster seven and booster nine, literally hundreds. And for example, like some major ones, like we, we moved from hy hydraulic thrust vector control to, from booster seven to booster nine. Yeah. The, the entire heat shield structure on the base of booster nine is completely redesigned for booster seven. So booster seven has a retrofitted heat shield system between the engines. And this is very important because if you, I think about it, if you have 33 engines and if any one of them goes wrong. It's like a dot. It's it's like having a box of grenades. Okay. <laughs> it is a, a really big grenades, and so if one of those grenades goes off, you don't want the other grenades to go off too. But we had to retrofit the heat shield, the blast shielding, essentially, and heat shield. It's both blast shielding and heat shielding at the base of Booster Seven, because we realized that the initial shielding that we had was just way too weak. Um, so we've taken that Booster Seven apart, put it back together again, so many times. It is an artisanal rocket, artisanary at scale. We, we just want to take off and move on to booster nine. There's, there's still a lot to learn, of course. There's, this is also a sort of fully autogenous rocket. So we're, that means we're using gasified oxygen to pressurize the oxygen tank, gas, gasified methane to pressurize the methane tank. This is a tricky situation because if you, the gas is trying to liquefy as you're as you're, you're trying to pressurize the thing with its own gas, naturally it wants to cool and what's called the ullage, the pressure and gas in the tanks, it wants to cool down and shrink as quickly as possible. Yeah. So you're filling it while it's condensing at the same time. How those relative rates work is remains to be seen because we've not done that with, with either the ship or the booster or with full tanks. So there's a question of will the engines be able to provide enough pressure and gas to keep the, the booster and the ship pressurized? Remains to be seen, but we'll, hopefully we'll get good data either way, even if it doesn't work as well as we'd hoped. There are a number, many improvements in the valves throughout the vehicle. It's always tricky when you want to have a valve work across a wide temperature range. So you can design a valve that's going to work at really cold temperature or a valve that'll work at hot temperature, but it's really hard to design a valve that'll work for all the way from cryo to hot. So there's, there's a million ways this rocket could fail. I could go on for hours. Um, what, right. what would you say? What would you say? Would you, if it does succeed, I'm talking probably, I guess, past Max Q, maybe staging, that'd be a massive win, let's face it. Massive win, yeah. yes. Yeah. So <laughs> if you get to there, though, but if you get even further, will you be thinking maybe chopstick catches in three or four attempts time? Or are we getting a, a bit ahead of ourselves there? Three or four. Depends on how well the, the, these launches go. Uh, it, but it, it's an easier move to try to catch the booster because the boosters, the booster, like that's obviously a thing we've done before, albeit not with chopsticks, but when you think about like ground safety, because we're obviously very, we want to be very careful about not endangering anyone on the ground. We can do the booster can boost back to the launch pad and with a very relatively small landing ellipse. So you're not really, you can boost back and not overfly populated areas. But for the ship, 
Now you've got a much harder problem because you're coming in kind of like the space shuttle, you're coming in over the United States. So we've got to make sure that the ship can land accurately through uh, max heating. And max heating is extreme, is extreme. Like this thing's coming in, like the ship is coming in like a meteor, blazing hot. So does the heat shield work? This is a big question. We, I think the heat shield, like we know the heat tiles work, but if we have gapping in the tiles or the hot gas seal at the flaps is a quite a dangerous place. That's where the, the hinge point of the flaps for the front and rear flaps, it's really difficult to achieve a hot gas seal there because you've got something that's moving. The flap hinge is rotating, but you got to stop the hot gas from getting through there and then relight the engines and land. It's a lot, lot to be done. I'm sure that people want to talk. They don't dominate the time. This proper report is like Crimson Downport on here as well. I'll just simply say, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I really just... sincerely, I've got to be an objective reporter. Honestly, let's, we all hope it works. We all wish it the best. We all wish your team the best. And it's, it's really for humanity because it's such an exciting rocky, what it can do and the capabilities of it. We all wish you the best, Elon. Thank you. Yeah, it's kind of, this is definitely giving me some pointers for things to improve about spaces because it's not that easy to actually look through the list of <laughs> yeah. requests and actually figure out who to get enabled to speak. Seems to work well best for, for smaller spaces, but once you get past a certain level of requests, it gets crazy. Like I don't see, I actually don't see Chris Davenport on the list. Oh yeah, he's right next to me. I don't know if I can bring sure. him on. <laughs> okay, maybe. Does it look? No, it doesn't let so me. Can do I mean, I can make you a, let's see, I'll make you a co-host. Maybe that'll enable it. Yeah, that might work. New. I think I'm like maybe talking to Chris Dunport later as well. Tell you what, while I'm talking to Elon, <laughs> people want to DM me questions. I'll ask Elon the questions you want asked. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be one way of doing it. Until someone else comes on. I was quick, I've got a quick query about KSC Starship. You got 39A, you got a tower bill. Are you still looking at LC 49? Yeah. Yeah. We've got. We built the launch tower at 39A and, uh, but before we do launches from there, we've got to have redundancy for crew so that we're building out the ability to launch crew from pad 40 at Cape. Now it doesn't give us redundancy against Falcon Heavy though. So, so it goes like, we want to use Cape for operational launches as opposed to developmental. Um, yep. especially if you got the launch pad, if you got the Starship launch pad pretty close to the. Falcon Heavy launch pad. If something goes wrong, it's going to be some downtime. So we, we want to get past the developmental stage here at Starbase before we launch out of the gate. I found John Krause. I've now got the ability to invite people to speak. John, can you speak and confirm you've got the ability to speak? He's definitely been invited. I tap that like mic icon and lower left. Yeah, John, if you can hear us, a little thing on the blonde left hand corner. Mike is on, just type that to make sure it comes on. Hey, do you have me now? There yeah. you go. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was kind of just listening in. 
enjoying the conversation. I think the one thing I'd ask is, well, there's kind of that famous phrase, always go to 11. Elon, could you speak in what that's referenced to with Falcon and like, what are the things you look at going into tomorrow? What is the 11th thing, if you will? 11th thing is obviously it's sort of partly referenced Spinal Tap, but the second flight of Falcon 1, the 11th risk was a coupling of the slosh modes of the upper stage liquid oxygen tank with the control frequency of the engine. And I'd asked for the top 10 risks at the time. And I was actually kind of worried about that coupling, but I didn't see it on the top 10 list. So it's not at risk. So I thought, okay. <laughs> so now we ask for the 11 in each department, the top 11 risks. <laughs> actually, more than that, people, there's no real limit. But there's volume goes to 11, which is louder than loud from spinal tap. And then there's the end. If, we'd, if I'd asked for the 11th risks, we, I would have maybe. I mean, it would have maybe taken some action on the, gotten to what we're doing with Falcon 1. So that's where that comes from. Did you ask me like what my biggest concern is about this launch? I see this, the concerns are similar to what the, the Soviet N1 rocket faced, which is you've got a lot of engines, there are stage combustion, so it's high pressure, very high pressure engines, very high performance engines. If one of them does let go, there's a domino into, does it take out and out the, the other engines or the stage or the launch pad, which case very bad day. That'd be my biggest concern is losing an engine that cascades into loss of the launch pad is really the thing we're concerned about. So if, if we love the launch pad and it's really much more of a fireball than it is an explosion, but it's a very big fireball and it'll melt the steel and slag the launch pad. It would take us probably several months to rebuild the launch pad if we melt it. So my top hope is please may fate smile upon us and we clear the launch pad before anything goes wrong. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, N N1 blew up with the launch pad. Yeah, several times. <laughs> I've also added uh, Ellie in space because I know she'll ask you some good questions about Starship. Hey. Ellie, you can speak. Can you hear go. me? Hey. Yeah. Hey, Elon. First of all, thanks for hosting this space. This is really great. And I was just curious in the midterm, what is the priority with Starship to develop and demonstrate refueling capability, work on the HLS variant, or are you just in general still proving the concept? No, I think that I'm just like I said, I really want to lower expectations as much as possible here and use us as an example, the, the Soviet N1 rocket, which was, which is really the closest rocket comparable to Starship. And Starship is in some ways more risky than the N1. It's a lot more thrust. It's running a higher chamber pressure. It's a full flow stage combustion, and it's got a cryogenic fuel. Cryogenic fuel has the added risk of gas, of fuel gasifying and forming a fuel air, a fuel oxygen pocket, which then it's, if you, if you get a, a fuel ox pocket forming like that lights off, it's a, a gigantic boom. So it, like, even if it happened in an engine compartment, it would really be quite, quite bad. Now we do have, we are running nitrogen purge on the, as, as much as we possibly can on the engines that on the launch pad. And then we have a CO2 purge in flight. So that should mitigate the risk, but if you can, if the engine can always leak faster than you can purge, so that's possible, I think you can, like say, get a, a fuel air 
that fuel that combination as the curtains. So this is a, it's a very risky flight. This is not something that is a sure thing at all. I guess um, I'm just wondering in the next few months, if we see a successful flight, what happens next? Yeah, I think I just need to set expectations that it probably won't be. And maybe the second one will be, and maybe, or maybe the third one will be, but probably tomorrow will not be successful. If by success, one means reaching orbit. This is not to say that there's, there's something we're aware of, that if there was something we're aware of, we would deal with it, but there isn't anything we're aware of. It's just a very fundamentally difficult thing. That's why I preface it by saying that the Soviet r rocket engineers, which really was the entire Warsaw Pact, Frank, um, their combined capabilities still resulted in failure despite maximum motivation and they were the A-team. So just please set your expectations appropriately. That is what success is not what should be expected tomorrow. That, that would be insane. But we've made a number of improvements with it. Anyway, I, sorry, and I, and I will need to go back to work shortly. What actually matters here is the fact that we are building rockets at a rapid pace. So we've got Booster 9, Ship 26, almost ready to go. And we have a steady cadence of rocket production afterwards. And with significant improvements between each iteration of the rockets. So you can think of the, the payload for this mission is information. Information that allows us to improve the design of future Starship builds. That is our only goal. If we get any information that allows us to improve the design of upcoming builds of Starship, then it is a success. It is purely learning. So that's really what matters here. Now, in the long term, so it's so difficult to predict what will happen between now and then, but in, in the long run, meaning two or three years, we should achieve full and rapid reusability. The physics of this design now allow for that in a way that Falcon 9 does not. Because we've got much higher performance engines, it's a, there's, some econ there's some economies of scale, and we're using a propellant that is a higher ISP. But full and rapid reusability will mean that the cost of a Starship flight will be less than the cost of an expendable Falcon 1. So meaning maybe it's a few a million dollars per flight or a few million dollars per flight or something like that. If you have a high flight rate and you have full and rapid reusability, even a rocket the size of Starship might, might be a million dollars a flight or something, um, which just boggles the mind. And then, and you combine that with what little refilling, which requires this sort of a ship docking with a ship, which we know how to do because we've figured out docking with Dragon. And if we're docking with ourselves, that's way easier than docking with the space station. Uh, so I, th I like the exciting thing I think is that this is an actual path to being a multi-planet civilization. That's that success, the, the fact that success is one of the possible outcomes is the amazing thing. Now we need to make it from being one of the possible outcomes to actually being probable. That's very difficult. Uh, so we've got an arduous uh, two or three years ahead of us with probably many bumps on the road. But at the end of that, it sh we, sh we should have something that enables a base on the moon and a base on Mars. And we really are designing this for just a, for an extremely high mass flux to this, the moon and Mars. And it, 
it can do both. But really, an immense amount of mass, rough order of magnitude, probably 5 million tons to useful load to Earth orbit to get to a million useful tons to Mars surface, which is probably what you need for a self-sustaining civilization. And in order to pass the <clears throat> great filter effectively, one of the Fermi, Fermi paradox great filters, which is all we are multi-planet species or not, the Mars has to be self-sustaining, which, which means that if the ships stop coming for any reason whatsoever, Mars must not die out. That's the, really the threshold. And then th we as a civilization need to achieve that threshold before global thermonuclear warfare or any other kind of event that eradicates civilization. That's the essential test. So which comes first? Hopefully there's never World War III, but there might be. And well, it could also be the case that civilization gradually subsides um, and dies in a whimper with adult diapers instead of with a bang. But either way, we've got to make hay while the sun shines. And we are at this brief moment in civilization where it is possible to become a multi-planet species. And hopefully that word just stays open long enough for us to actually do it. That's our goal. Um, yeah. I think we got a chance, but it's less uh, I see. Hey, Elon, this is uh, Joey. Can you hear me? Yeah, Joey from Reuters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just real quick. I guess this goes back to Ellie's question. What kind of testing cadence are you expecting after this mission? I guess either in the scenario that something blows up along the way or if it's flawless. How many more missions, I guess, before we see some real hardware going to space? Thanks. I'm just saying we, we don't know. This vehicle could make it all the way to orbit, or it may blow up on the pad. So I would encourage people to review the history of the Soviet N1 rocket. It was really a very impressive rocket design, and it, but ne never reached orbit. And one of the missions blew up the entire pad. We don't know if we knew we would take action, but I reviewed everything with the team today, and no nobody can think of anything that would make a big difference to our probability of success. So we. Therefore, we must move forward and give it our best shot. Have you gotten any clarity on the costs that you're targeting for building these things once it gets into a production rate? And how much did this particular Starship system cost to build? If you can... If it doesn't really actually matter what this particular vehicle cost. It'd be a bit like saying if you've got a, say, a, a soap factory, what did your first bar of soap cost? $10 million. But that's not actually what the bar of soap cost because what matters is what does it cost at volume production? So the, and then if you've got a fully reusable rocket, now you're not throwing it away every time. So the, if you're not throwing it away every time, then you, what matters is your cost of propellant. Now our rocket is methane oxygen, roughly 23% methane by mass, 77% oxygen. And we want to actually try to maybe push the oxygen percentage a little higher. So it's mostly oxygen and, and the cost of liquid oxygen is roughly the cost of electricity. So, because you just pull out of the air and liquefy it. Methane is the cheapest fuel that exists. So it's, one could think, get the cost of propellant theory well below half a million dollars. And then it's how many flights do you have and what's the refurbishment cost per flight? If it's, and then how often do you fly? Determines the, you divide the capital cost by how many times you fly. So we see a path to at volume on the order of a million or $2 million per flight total or total cost for over a hundred metric tons to orbit. And that, that, the, the, these are like, 
absurdly good numbers by historical standards. Get out to even have to, for it to even be remotely possible to do a hundred tons for a million bucks to orbit fully. That's just boggles the mind, frankly, it's so far beyond. Uh, but the, the important thing is that is one of the possible outcomes. Uh, so uh, for other rocket designs, there are several orders of magnitude away from that. And that is not one of the possible outcomes for the other rocket designs. For any given endeavor, you should always ask, is success in the set of possible outcomes? <laughs> if not, you've got a real problem. At least in this case, it is in the set. Now, then once it is in the set of possibilities, then you work on improving the probability. Gotcha. In about the orbital refueling <laughs> tests, what kind of testing timeline do you imagine with that? Do you do that in parallel to other types of tests or when should we expect those? We're not going to try to refill. I use the word refill because technically it's mostly oxygen that we're transporting up there. It's called, I said, roughly 77% oxygen, 23% fuel. But the point at which these things are going up and coming down reliably, that's when we aim to do open refilling. Good afternoon, Elon. Just a quick question here. This is Austin Matusta from Everyday Astronaut. In terms of your launch tomorrow, can you share, obviously, the payload bay door is welded shut, but did you guys put anything in there? Obviously, we've had a history of some interesting items on inaugural launches. And then what made, what helped you get to the decision to not try to attempt to soft land a Ship 24 near Hawaii since Booster 7 is doing a boost back burn and doing that in the Gulf? Thanks. There isn't any possibility of landing of the ship, soft landing it. So this, that would mean putting legs on it, put legs on it. You change the, you shift the center of gravity, the center of mass rearward, and then you have to put ballast in the forward section. So it's really, it's not a simple matter to try to land it somewhere. The, what matters is, it looked like I said, we need to set expectations low. If it gets to orbit, that's a massive success. That's more than the best Soviet, the smartest Soviet engineers could do at the height of their powers with maximum motivation. And they they weren't aiming for, at least the initial iteration was not, the N1 was not a reusable rocket. This one is. So we've got a few years to go before we can count on reusability. And just and, to, just to round it off here for tomorrow specifically and whatever other times, what are the biggest factors holding that up? And what are the biggest things you're worried about going into that performance wise? and just success-wise. Obviously, you mentioned earlier that clearing the tower, getting off is a big win, but are there anything that you're pretty concerned about going into it? I have a concern list a mile long. Like I said, I, I, my main concern is that when we light the engines, that we didn't, that the engines, uh, none of the engines explode, and that if one does explode, that it's contained and is not Domino into the other engines for the stage. That's the, you've got 33 engines that all need to work. If they do, if one does not work, that it does not cause destruction of the vehicle. That's all, that's really all I'm concerned about here. And at least then, and the, then the, it needs to get far enough away from the launch pad such that if it, something does go wrong, it does not cause destruction of the launch pad. That is, that's it. And anything above that is, I'll be jumping for joy. Uh, 
I think a lot of us will be jumping for joy. I'm, maybe I can ask a final question for you, Elon. This is Zach from CSI Starbase. I feel like I've watched very closely over the last two or three years. And I like to be critical just to let people know what's going on. Cause I feel like sometimes there's a lot of misunderstanding of what's actually happening out there. And I guess I don't want to ask you like too technical of a question, but I guess based on what you initially thought was going to be the biggest hurdle, like what was the actual largest hurdle to get this first launch underway? Cause obviously there was tons of GSE issues, tons of like actual vehicle issues, structural and structural qualification testing. But if you had to pick out of all of the things that you guys came up against leading up to this biggest day, like what was the hardest thing to get over in order to reach tomorrow morning at 7 a.m.? It's hard to say which is the hardest because it's what's, it's kind of what's the hardest or what's the hardest relative to expectations. I suppose that if we to pick one thing, it's us, but with the engines is that we had to do a complete redesign of the Raptor engine because it was just, yeah, for one was simply not reliable and almost impossible to make. So complete redo of the Raptor engine, Raptor 2, probably the single biggest thing that, that, that set us back, I don't know, six to nine months, probably. Yeah. You know, and then we had a lot of, a lot more challenges with the ground system which is underappreciated because it seems like, like, well, it's just a, the ground system that's not so hard, but actually the ground system is very difficult. I, I promise you that I appreciate it. I've noticed every single change along the way, and it's been interesting. Just from my point of view, it seems like you, it, most recently, you guys definitely drastically increased the amount of sensors in order to like make sure that everything goes flawlessly. I feel like a lot of people don't really appreciate the amount of changes that you guys made over the last few months in order to make this go off flawlessly. I don't know. I feel like the GSE stuff just doesn't get covered enough overall, like even from SpaceX, like letting people know like what's all involved in just getting this off the ground. I don't know if you have any comments on just like a huge thing that you wish didn't happen leading up to this or something like that. GSE related. I can't really think of one like single thing. I guess in retrospect, we should have gone with relatively off the shelf, vacuum jacketed, horizontal tanks or propeller instead of you know, trying to make our own, you know, call them like the hot dogs, the, the big horizontal vacuum jacketed tanks. So probably should have gotten, gone with those instead of trying to build our own. But I would like to just say that the, the importance of the ground side is really, it's just as important as the boost stage and the ship. So you can think of like a cool the ground side stage zero. And if you get stage zero wrong, then, then you're going to have the worst day of all where you've got the launch stand and the rocket. So getting the ground side working. Well, cause the ground side is also controlling when you start up the rocket, uh, the ground side is, is what's controlling the abort. So if you have an issue with the engine or the stage or anything like that, and you've got a detank and say a stand, then you're reliant upon your stage zero, your ground equipment to keep the whole thing safe and all the software and logic that goes with it. It's just trying to plug big plug for just the stage zero, even though it doesn't fly, it's just as important as stage one and two. 
All right, with that, I got to get back to work, guys. So, if I can, just one quick question. What do you think the chances are this thing actually lights up and launches tomorrow? Or do you think there's a higher chance of a scrub? It's more likely to scrub than not then. Go to Tuesday and Wednesday, or do you think there might be some longer scrub? I don't know. Depends on Can't the issue. Check. Thanks. Thanks, Elon. Thanks, Elon. A fair wind and following seas tomorrow.